On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Doug Blunt about the doctrine of divine timelessness. So we cover all sorts of topics like just what in the world does it mean to say that God is timeless? Is that different from saying that God is atemporal or eternal or other terms? What? Why would someone even want to think of God as timeless? And how do the various theories of time relate to God and his relationship to time? If we want to affirm a doctrine of divine timelessness, does that fit better with a particular version of time? And why shouldn't we be swayed by those arguments against timelessness? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. I'm Jordan Stefaniak, one of your hosts, and I'm joined by Matt Natiros, who also lives near me, so that's pretty cool, even though we're doing all these interviews virtually. Um, as If you're a new listener, I always try to remind people, when we talk about serious thinking, what do we mean? Well, we, we've tried to talk about that as developing or at least uh, encouraging a sort of intellectual culture of things like charity curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. That's not all we want to encourage, but those are some of the main things. So things like charity, because we see that uh, we think, as a Christian, if you want to be a serious thinker, you need to have particular virtues, and we find those in James 3. And we also see in sort of like the internet culture a severe lack of these things. So all that we can do to encourage those, the better. Uh, We also like to encourage serious, just critical thinking. Uh, Me and Brandon, who started the podcast long ago, we looked around at a lot of our Baptist context and thought uh, most of these people don't value thinking in any in any form. And it could be uh, just sort of like the air you breathe. And we want to try to change that culture to say, no, we should care about thinking. And just because we're Baptist doesn't mean we don't have to think seriously. So those are sort of things that we've tried to do with this interview, all sorts of people. And today I am delighted and thrilled to introduce you all to Dr. Doug Blunt. So I had the privilege of taking an epistemology course with Dr. Blunt many, what feels like forever ago. And I, it was one of the highlights of my academic, academic career. So I, I just, I love talking to him just in general, because I think he's fascinating. He's got all sorts of good ideas. He's done a ton of work on the topic of divine timelessness. And I don't think we've ever done an interview on the topic of God and time besides Ryan Mullins. And so I wanted I've always wanted to have somebody who's more classically inclined, at least, to talk about the topic. So this is going to be a whole lot of fun. I think the topic itself is just, it's fascinating. A lot of times people don't think about all the different things that kind of like play into it, and there's just a lot to talk about. So I'm going to stop talking. I'm going to let Dr. Blunt introduce himself just a little bit. So Dr. Blunt, for those who don't know you, tell me a little bit about yourself, maybe, you know, your academic journey or whatever. Uh, but I'd, I'd really be interested in, like, what drew you to this particular topic to research? Right. So as far as educational background, I did my undergraduate work in history at Baylor. Um, by the way, intending to go to seminary, but in the providence of God, that's not the path I ended up taking. Uh, I stayed at Baylor, did an MA in philosophy, and then ended up going to Notre Dame to do more work in philosophy. So I also have an MA and a PhD from Notre Dame in philosophy. Um, My dissertation is entitled An Essay on Divine Presence. And 
As William Abraham pointed out to me one time, it sounds like it just deals with omnipresence, with God in space. But as a matter of fact, I was concerned with divine presence in space and time both. Um, so it's it's basically uh, concerned with um, om, omnipresence and eternality. Uh, I was really fortunate at Notre Dame to be guided and officially directed by Tom Flint and unofficially directed uh, by Eleanor Stump. Um, Eleanor happened to be there a couple of the years I was there on campus, and um, she was marvelously helpful. Um, Alvin Planning and Phil Quinn were my other readers for the dissertation, so I was enormously fortunate with respect to who I got to work with. My interest in God in Time began really when I was an undergraduate and then doing master's work at Baylor. Not that I envisioned I would pursue that interest in doctoral work, but, uh, you know, the interest was there. Um, When I was working on doctoral work and trying to decide what to write on, um, I I had initially thought I would write on uh, Barclayan idealism. Because among my uh, idiosyncrasies is a wildly enthusiastic interest in Barclay and Barclay and idealism. Um, but I ended up not pursuing that for logistical reasons. The, uh, um, that project wasn't, I could tell after working on it for a while, not going to end up coming to fruition and God in Time was something that I was extraordinarily interested in anyway. And at the time I was working, the openness of God discussion was fairly young, uh, fairly new within evangelical circles. I mean, you know, it, it's not original, of course, to evangelicals. Um, you know, um, Swinburne, for instance, uh, in the mid 80s, early 80s, had basically put it on the table without the name. So, I mean, when evangelicals come, you know, to articulate the view in the late 80s, early 90s, it's already on the table. But I was very concerned about it and also very concerned about what seemed to me to be the wide ranging implications of divine timelessness. I think how one understands God's relationship to time has an impact on a lot of other Um, theological commitments that one will end up having or not having. That being said, um, perhaps a more immediate concern with respect to the the fact that I ended up writing not just on God and time, but God and space, was my reading of Anselm. And Anselm's um, understanding that God is both everywhere and nowhere with respect to space and every when and no when with respect to time. Um, And so what my dissertation ended up seeking to do, or what I ended up seeking to do with the dissertation, is articulate a rigorous account of God, space, and time that made sense of those Anselmian commitments, right? So in what sense is it true to say God is everywhere and yet nowhere? And with respect to time, of course, what exactly do we mean? Does Anselm mean us to understand uh, his claim that that God is both every when and no when? How precisely do we understand that? So, 
I probably told you more than you want to know in terms of background, but there you go. <laughs> no, no, that's helpful context. Just to, I, I always love these things. That just makes it more fun. So when we think about divine timelessness in particular, I think a lot of people, maybe they read different literature and they see different words being thrown out like atemporal, timeless, eternal. I guess, number one, are those things supposed to mean the same thing? And if they don't, what is the difference between saying that God is timeless versus God is atemporal versus God is eternal? Yeah, um, I don't understand anything different uh, when I use the term timeless than what, or I don't mean anything different when I use the term timeless than I mean when I use the term atemporal or eternal. And, And frankly, in the literature, I don't think there's a distinction intended by those terms. So I think you can use them synonymously without fear of contradiction. Uh, that being said, I I think it is worth noting that, and this is a point that I think in the literature uh, doesn't get recognized. You know, everybody acknowledges there are different ways you can be a temporalist. If you think God is temporal, there are a variety of ways that you might spell that out, but people don't generally recognize the same thing is true when it comes to timelessness. Uh, In other words, to affirm that God is timeless, there is a core understanding, but there are a variety of ways that one might go about fleshing that out. Um, and, And so it's not the case when it comes to advocates of divine timelessness. It's not the case that our views are all identical. They're not. Um, You know, in fact, when I was working on my dissertation on this, I mentioned three distinct ways one could be an advocate of timelessness. Um, And I don't for a minute think that I canvassed all the possibilities. I was just making the point. Here are some different ways you could go if you think God is timeless. Um, You know, so but as far as the basic senses of the terms, to get back to your question, I think atemporal, timeless, eternal, um, I think it's entirely appropriate to use those synonymously. And of course, in the professional discussion, ordinarily the contrast is put between those who think that God is timelessly eternal and those who think that he is temporally everlasting, right? And, And so the difference between the term everlasting as it gets used in the professional discussion and the term eternal is that advocates of the everlasting view are typically temporalists. That's just a way of, of uh, uh, you know, speaking of their view. And the eternalists tend to be, uh, that term tends to refer to those who think God is timeless. I guess one of the things that we need to do at the beginning is to think through different theories of time, potentially. So I think oftentimes when we come to this discussion, particularly we've got a lot of people who are more trained in sort of theology who listen to the podcast, not as much philosophy. And they probably they might not even realize that there are various views on the concepts of time. So maybe help me to think through A theory, B theory, and if you can have divine timelessness on both of them, and if that might shift how you think about it depending on which way you go? Because I think that kind of sets up a lot of the rest of the questions that I might have. Yeah, sure. Well, um, 
Yeah, so there's a famous article written by a guy named Taggart in the early part of the 20th century in which he argues for the unreality of time. Um, I can't remember, but I think the title of the article might be The Unreality of Time. But McTaggart famously distinguishes between what he calls the A-series and the B-series. And these are two uh, radically different ways of conceiving of time. They're not, by the way, incompatible on the face of it, but they serve as the basis for kind of incompatible perspectives on time. If you're talking about time in terms of the A-series, you're talking about time with regard to the present moment, which moves, right? So um, on an A-series conception, we think of time primarily in terms of the um, present, which is privileged, and that's the important point here, um, and, and the present is moving from the past into now, and in you know, time is moving from the past to the present to the future. Now, people who put a primacy on a theory typically affirm an understanding of time that's known as presentism. Presentism is the view that the past and the future do not exist. So the present moment is privileged in that it alone is. Um, I'm a little uncomfortable even putting it that way because it seems to me there's some sneakiness going on in the way that's put. But but I'm going to put that aside for the moment. The B-series conceptualization of time um, right, uh, understands time in terms of succession. So, so you order time in terms of which moments come first um, and, and what moments follow it. And, and often people whose thinking about time is dominated by kind of this B-series understanding will think of the present as having no ontological privilege, right? Uh, the, the, the present moment obviously exists, but no less real, so to speak, uh, is the future or the past, um, right? And, and so um, the view that the present moment isn't ontologically privileged is, uh, is often referred to as kind of eternalism, um, right? And so in the God and Time discussion, you certainly have folks... Um, who are presentists, who will argue that presentism is inconsistent with divine timelessness. You'll have other folks who will argue that an eternalist view is right, and if you hold an eternalist view, then it seems most natural to think of God as timeless. So, so in the discussion, there's a kind of underlying assumption that many people make that presentism almost necessarily goes with a temporalist view. And uh, eternalism, right, this B-series way of thinking about time, goes with a timelessness view. Now, the reason I say that is, I mean, first of all, that's true, right? There, there are a number of folks in the discussion who think your philosophy of time ought to drive your understanding of God's relationship to time 
and whether you're a presentist or an eternalist with respect to time should be the deciding factor in how you think about God and time. Um, that being said, uh, I don't think that. Um, first of all, if you asked me my view of time, I would tell you I'm inclined toward presentism, but I'm an advocate of divine timelessness. Now, I don't think anybody should care what my inclination is on this front, but people much smarter than me would agree with this. For instance, Eleanor Stump thinks, uh, I think, holds a presentist view. Um, you know, William Lane Craig put out a famous article um, a couple decades ago uh, where he actually argues that if you're an advocate of timelessness, you should be a B theorist. Um, I think the article was framed around the question of whether or not Aquinas was a B theorist. Um, and I have to confess, it's been a long time since I've read that article, so I can't remember the details of the argument. But uh, at the time, and I assume that he would still make this claim, at the time, Bill was arguing that, well, you know, if you're going to be a timelessness advocate, you need B, t B series. You need B, that conception of time. Um, he thinks that conception of time is untenable. Ergo, timelessness is untenable. Well, the truth of the matter is, um, most of the timelessness advocates I know are, in fact, presentists. And I think historically, if we're not talking about 20th and 21st century discussions, but discussions that go way further back in the history of the church, I think the dominant combination of views in the history of the church is presentism plus timelessness. Um, so I'm not at all convinced that your philosophy of time should drive your understanding of God and time. Um, if anything, I think it goes the other way in that your understanding of God and time ought to drive your philosophy of time. So if somebody could convince me that timelessness only fits on a B theory, then I wouldn't give up timelessness. I would give up presentism. But I'm not at all convinced that that's the case. So I, since I think the two are not incompatible, I'm quite happy to be where I think the majority of the tradition has been. Before we get into uh, reasons, pro and con for, for timelessness and, and that sort of thing, uh, you, you had mentioned earlier uh, there are different ways of cashing out what it is for God to be timeless uh, or different, different theorists have, have, you know, have mentioned different ways. Um, so I was wondering if you could you could talk a little bit about those um, and in particular, um, maybe in relation to this impression that I think a lot of people tend to have uh, sometimes when, when, when you tell them God is timeless, that this, this makes God sort of just like this frozen, static, inert entity. Um, and so how, how should we understand timelessness uh, in a way that doesn't lead us to, to, to see God in, in, in these ways that might almost seem to imply that he has no agency or he's just this frozen, static entity? Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, and actually, Matt, that makes good sense. It There are actually three or four obviously different questions, so I'm going to just start picking away at them, and if I forget one, remind me. Um, first of all, let me return to the point about um, a variety of ways that one could be an advocate of timelessness, 
right? One could be, and, and I'm going to use my terminology here, but I don't think there's a standard terminology, right? So my terminology is as good, I think, as anyone else's with respect to the distinctions I'm about to make. Okay, so let's call the view that God exists at no time whatsoever absolute timelessness, right? So that would be the view that God exists, but there is no time at which God exists. Okay, that's absolute timelessness. Now, compare that to what I call relative timelessness. Um, and by the way, I need to quickly add, Alan Paget actually is in print using the term relative timelessness. But what's odd in my view, and his work on this is really interesting, but what's odd on my view is the fact that a God who is relatively timeless on his view is temporalist on anybody else's. So, so I, my point is just, he uses the term, I'm using it very differently. When if, if one is an absolute timelessness, you know, an absolute atemporalist, one thinks that there is no time whatsoever at which God exists. Now, in the tradition, there is a precedent for thinking of God as existing at a single eternal moment. In fact, the classic Boethian articulation of God and time in Boethius's um, account of God and time that he puts forward very briefly in the Consolation of Philosophy uh, is kind of the um, you know, the classical statement of what a temporalist think. Um, so there might be some initial prejudice in favor of this particular way of, of, uh, of construing it. But Boethius puts it this way, of course, translated into English. Eternality is the complete possession all at once of illimitable life. So God has illimitable or infinite life. There is no limit to his life. But unlike us, who are temporal, he enjoys the fullness of that life, to use the language of Boethius, all at once. Right? Uh, you and I, first of all, don't enjoy a limitable or infinite life. And what life we have, I mean, if nothing else, we've had a beginning, right? What's more, what life we have, what life we enjoy is spread out over time. I'm reminded of a line in, I um, can't remember if it's the Fellowship of the Ring or I think it's the Fellowship, where Bilbo describes what the ring does. And the ring extends one's life, but it doesn't give one more life, right? So the, the way Tolkien has Bilbo explain this is, Although he's lived longer, he hasn't had more life. He feels like um, butter spread too thinly over bread, if I remember, right? Well, well, that actually is an interesting kind of um, choice of, of wording when you think about, you know, our relationship to time. Our lives are spread out. We don't enjoy the fullness of our lives all at once, so to speak. Um. <laughs> Now, here's where I'm going with this. If you're an absolute atemporalist, you think there's no time at which God exists whatsoever. If you're a relative timelessness, you think that God exists at some time, 
but the time at which he exists is not temporally related to now, right? So, so you might think um, in terms of different, um, um, I don't even want to say timelines, that, that's problematic, it seems to me, but temporal arrays, right? The, the, the point for a relative atemporalist would be, well, it's not that God exists at no time whatsoever, but the times at which God exists are not simultaneous or after or um, before now, right? So they're not temporarily related to now. And to kind of kind of get at this, um, I use the analogy of an author. And since I've already introduced Tolkien into our discussion, I'll just use him. Suppose somebody asks, well, the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, that event, right, in, in the return of the king, does that happen before or after Tolkien's 40th birthday? Well, that's a nonsensical question, right? Why? Well, because the events in Middle Earth, there's a time in which the events in Middle Earth plays out, but that time is not temporarily related to the life of the author, right? So we could usefully speak of Tolkien's time and we can usefully speak of the time of Middle-earth, but those times aren't themselves temporally related. Well, so if you're um, a relative atemporalist, it seems to me you're going to think something like that is the right way to think of God's relation. It's not that God has no, um, has no time. It's that the divine time is not temporally related to our time, to created time. Now, if you're a relative atemporalist, there are at least two ways you could go. You could, as Boethius seems to say, think that there is a time at which God exists, but that time has precisely one moment, right? And, and this is where you get discussion within eternalist circles of the eternal now, right? It seems to me that's a coherent view, but it also strikes me as weird. Um, that doesn't mean it's false. You know, even if it is weird, it might be true. And the fact that I think it's weird doesn't mean it's even actually weird, right? That's really more a fact about my take on it. But um, so you could be a relative atemporalist who thinks that God exists at a time which time is just the eternal now. Or you could think that the divine time, so to speak, um, is itself a temporal array, not unlike the created array, except it has no beginning and no end, right? So, so there, there are a variety of rays. Now, personally, I tend toward what I'm referring to as the absolute atemporalist view. Uh, but it seems to me these other views are coherent, and I think sometimes when you read a temporalist, you might get the sense that a particular a temporalist is conceiving of it in one of these other ways. So uh, I don't know if that's helpful. I don't even know if that makes if that's coherent um, the way that I've stated it. No, that that is. I, I guess just a, a real brief follow up. Um, yeah. I mean, what what practically is the distinction between? Uh, the, the Boethian view, where you have a single sort of moment, yeah. 
yeah. uh, and, and the, the pure timelessness view, because I mean, in, in both, there's no succession there, there. There seems that there's no there's no succession. Right. Um, well, there's no temporal succession. OK. Right. And and, um, and and I don't say this to quibble. I mean, I think when people think of succession, typically it's temporal succession they have in mind. Um What's necessary, I think, for God to be interactive, and and I may be skipping ahead, Matt, to one of the other questions that you had mentioned, but what's important in order for God to interact with creation is that some of his thing, some of the things he does are done in light of what happens within creation, right? So for instance, God responds to my prayer if he wills something in response to the prayer because I pray it, right? Now, let's suppose that God knows from all eternity what I'm going to pray. I mean, let's think about this on a temporalist, right? God knows from all eternity what I'm going to pray for. And being not only omniscient, perfectly stable in terms of character, etc. He knows from eternity how he's going to respond. Right? Now, that response, the effects of that response don't take place until after I've prayed. But from all eternity, it's been the case that he was going to respond in the way that he in fact responds, right? Okay, well, I scratch my head and say, if that's not a problem, what does it matter if he's outside of time, if that makes sense, right? I mean, what's necessary for God to interact with me is for some of the things he timelessly wills to be willed in light of what he knows I'm going to do, right? And, and if you understand, and if you think on a temporalist view, if God is indeed omniscient, I'm not talking about on an openness view here, right? Where God doesn't perhaps know what I will pray for because he doesn't know what I'll do freely. And, and I'm just going to assume that my prayers are freely offered, right? I'm talking on a traditional Orthodox understanding of God, which also wants to to view him as temporal, on that view, he's always known what I would pray and always known how he would respond. So it's not like it's not until I pray that he makes a decision. Well, okay. Um, how it, how exactly does timelessness run afoul of this if that temporalist view doesn't? And, and another way to make this as a challenge to my temporalist friends would be to say, well, if you really think the timelessness view has a problem here, shouldn't this knock you out of, if you're going to be a temporalist, shouldn't this also knock you out of affirming uh, that God has exhaustive knowledge of the future? I think you don't want to go that route or you shouldn't want to go that route. But if you got a problem with timelessness on this front, why don't you have a problem with a temporal God who is nonetheless omniscient? Yeah, no, that that I, that makes sense to me, and I can sense that. I think some people's intuitions might just be that, yeah, I want to give all that stuff up and deny omniscience and everything, which to me seems like, wow, you've bitten off way bigger of a bullet 
<laughs> than you would have had to have taken if you went the timelessness route. Um, so two uh, big objections to timelessness that I've seen, I know there's a bunch of little ones, but one seems to be how in the world can God be timeless and him become incarnate? And then the other one that I've seen more recently is just the idea that, well, does this make God somehow eternally a creator? And that seems really weird and problematic. So maybe, do you have any thoughts on either of those particular so-called problems? Yeah, I do. Not surprisingly. Um, I have more thoughts on the incarnation issue. So I'm going to, I'm going to reverse the order, (coughs) excuse me, in which I respond. Yeah. First of all, look, um, the distinction between one's action and the effects of one's action is an absolutely legitimate distinction that philosophers have long recognized. So when I make this point, this is not an ad hoc move that's made simply because, oh no, how are we going to respond to this you know, divine activity concern? Right. This is an absolutely legitimate point to make, so I'm going to make it. The mode of one's action need not be identical to the mode of one of the effects of one's action. And so what Christians who affirm timelessness, which, of course, in the history of the church is the dominant view, um, what what they've traditionally said and Aquinas is a magnificent example. If, if you want a particular, you know, um, Christian theologians take on this. What atemporalist Christians have traditionally said is, look, God acts timelessly, but his timeless action has temporal effects. So it's not true that God first does this and then does that. He first, say, uh, speaks to Moses out of the burning bush, and then he, uh, he parts the Red Sea, just to use a couple of obvious examples. Right. What's true, rather, is that he timelessly speaks to Moses out of the burning bush and he timelessly parts the Red Sea and the effects of that timeless action take place in time. So so certainly Moses hears God speaking before the sea is parted, but the action of speaking to Moses doesn't occur before the action of parting the sea. Right. So it, it's just it seems to me an obvious red herring to say, well, you know, a timeless being can't act in time. And that flies in the face of the biblical conception of God. Well, <coughs> excuse me. Um, and maybe you can edit the cough out, by the way. Um, but back to the point. Um, well, OK, strictly speaking, God if he's not in time, doesn't act in time. But it doesn't follow from that the the effects of his action don't take place in time. And timelessness is itself very controversial, right? The claim that God is timelessly eternal is very controversial in the last couple of generations, at least. But the claim that God is spacelessly omnipresent isn't, right? And, And we don't think that this raises a problem for God's activity in the created world, we recognize that he can spacelessly act and his spaceless activity has spatial effects, right? Well, 
the timelessness advocate is saying, well, the same point holds true with respect to his relationship to time and his ability to bring about effects within the temporal realm, within creation. So, so that's my answer or response. Um, I'd like to say brief, but you might quibble with me if I called that a brief response. But that's my response to that initial one. If you want to follow up, great. If not, just give me the signal and I'll move into talking about the incarnation. Okay. So first of all, the best article, the best written piece that I know of on this question is an article entitled On the Incarnation of a Timeless God. And it's an article that appears in an anthology published by Oxford, edited by Gregory Ganzel and David Woodruff. Um, And the author of that article is, well, me. Uh, And when I tell you it's the best thing I've seen in print on this, let me be honest and say, that's because there's almost nothing in print on this. Um, I mean, I know of my article on this, but I know of precious little else. Um, But that being said, here it seems to me is the response. Well, we need to begin by thinking very carefully about what an Orthodox Christology demands. Obviously enough, it demands, among other things, that Christ is both fully divine and fully human. And if we attend to the history of Christian reflection on this, and of course I have Chalcedon especially in mind here, um, Christ being fully human involves God the Son taking on both a human body and a human soul. Uh, The language of Chalcedon, I think, is rational soul. Personally, I'm inclined to think that language is suggestive, to put it mildly, of mind. And so I think what Chalcedon is setting forth is a Christology which Tom Morris has more recently called a two minds Christology. At the very least, Chalcedon demands, and of course Chalcedon is the church's articulation of its understanding of the teaching of Jesus and the apostles about Christ. Um, Right, what, what a two minds Christology involves is acknowledging that Jesus of Nazareth had two minds. This isn't to say he was double-minded. It's to say that he possessed the divine mind that was his in virtue of his divinity and which is uncreated. But in becoming human, he didn't just take on a human body. He also took on a human mind or a rational soul. And that is a created mind or soul. Okay, once we understand that, here's the point that I want to make. If that's right, and and I think it is, in fact, I think it's not only right, it's what orthodoxy demands. Well, if, if that's right, then to speak of Christ's body as being spatially and temporally located is not to speak of him 
as being spatially and temporally located because he's not simply his body. Make the point, but add the created human mind, right? When the Gospels tell us that Jesus is in Jerusalem, we understand that to mean that's where his physical body is, the body that he takes on in the incarnation. We may also, depending on our philosophy of mind, think that that's also indicating that that's where his human mind is, right? Maybe not. Maybe we think human minds aren't spatially located. I'm not going there, right? This isn't a discussion of philosophy of mind. But but here's the point. The reality of Christ is not exhausted by the created body and the created rational soul that he takes on in the incarnation. The divine mind is not temporally located or spatially located, right? So so the Gospels give us an account of Christ which makes obvious the fullness of his humanity. And, And in so doing, it certainly rightly portrays him as being in one place and not another. But when we speak that way, we recognize that this, we are speaking with respect to his humanity. Just as an aside, there's a magnificent um, passage in Athanasius's On the Incarnation of the Word, in which he speaks of Christ as being omnipresent. Um, And again, this is with respect to, you know, involves his relationship to space, not time. Uh, But the two are so closely related, it seems to me, that it's worth mentioning, right? He makes the point beautifully that, and and I'm operating off memory here, so I may not get the quotation exactly right in in translated into English, but it's something like this. Athanasius says, the one who quickens the body of the baby in the manger is nonetheless, is nonetheless the one who by his presence quickens the whole universe. In in other words, he doesn't cease to be omnipresent simply because there is a special sense in which he is present as this little infant, this baby, right? He continues to be present throughout all creation. Indeed, he continues to be the word by whom the Father upholds all things in being, right? Well, it, it seems to me we want to say that as it is with respect to omnipresence, so it is with respect to eternality. Um, Now, I've tried to really convince my thinking on this, and what I've given short shrift to are some of the details of the Christological understanding that's underlying all this, but hopefully that's at least enough to make sense of how I think an eternalist can uh, coherently and biblically respond uh, to the concern about incarnation. Yeah, that's good. Matt, I'll let you have the last crack at a question because I know you've got a lot on your mind. (laughs) So I guess maybe uh, partially in follow up to what you just said and then and then leading into to one other, um, you know, as you know, and and mentioned before, William Lane Craig's been a a prominent proponent of of, uh, the idea that God is in time, at least uh, with creation. so I, I wonder, uh, I mean, one... Yeah, Matt, sorry. Let, me, let me ask you a quick question. And when I ask this, it's a serious question. The way you put it, right, he's, 
he's in time, at least with respect to creation. Right. I think that's a fair way of rendering uh, Dr. Craig's view. What does that mean? I mean. Yeah. And, and you... I, I'm, I'm not asking this to put you on the spot. Here's the no, point. No, no, no. Here's the point I want to make. Look, the way I've heard Bill put it is God is timeless without creation, but temporal with it. Now, when I first heard him put it that way, I thought I understood it. And here's what I thought he meant. And by the way, I think if he meant what I thought he meant, this is a really interesting view. It's unique, in fact. I thought what he was saying is, well, if God hadn't created, he'd be timeless. But because he did create, he's temporal. Or because he did create the world that he actually created, he's temporal. Right. So I thought he was claiming this. God is contingently temporal. Right. That makes sense to me. And that's interesting. No one else. And I shouldn't say else here because I. Bill tells me this isn't his view, right? But no one else holds the view that God's relationship to time is contingent. I I don't know anybody. So that's a really interesting view. But when I asked him this explicitly, I said, here's what I think your view is. Am I right? He said, oh, no, you've got it totally wrong. And I said, okay, so what is your view? Well, it's this. Without creation, God is timeless. With creation, he's temporal. Yeah. And, and and so I'm scratching my head because, okay, that's what you said initially, but I thought I understood it. Now, obviously, I don't understand it. And, and by the way, the right conclusion to come here might be, well, you know, Blunt's just not very quick on his feet and just doesn't follow this. Okay, that, that's fair, but I honestly don't know what that means. I mean, the way I've understood him, he seems to think that this state of affairs of God's existing atemporally or outside of time is is a real part of the world somehow. Uh, and, and yet somehow with creation, he enters time. But how that doesn't then situate that timeless state of affairs as like a prior state of affairs, I don't know. I, I don't I don't understand exactly how to. Yeah. Yeah. So I just scratched my head over it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I don't mean that at all disrespectfully. I mean, you know, William Lane Craig is amazing. He's brilliant. But I I honestly, I don't understand that view. I, I don't understand what it means. And so there's not much I can say about it because of that. So yeah. anyway, and I'm sorry, I cut you off with my question. So no, back to you, sir. No, no, no. Yeah. So th- this I, this particular uh, objection from him, I don't think has anything to do with his peculiar, you know, like the peculiarities of his view. Um, but, you know, one of the objections he's advanced uh, against divine timelessness, and I think, you know, particularly interesting in this context, because you you said you affirm presentism. Um, right. That You said that. Yeah. Am, yeah. 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 Um, is uh, is this idea or is this question of how God can know tensed facts? 
um, in, in a timeless way. Uh, if, if there are, if presentism is true, and presumably there are, there are tensed facts about, for example, what is going on right now, uh, in, in, you know, and, and so forth, and these facts change over time, how does that not introduce then change into the life of God, at least with respect to his, the content of his knowledge? Um, yeah, um, I, I'm going to answer I'm going to answer very briefly, but there's a much longer discussion here uh, to be had about the nature of uh, propositions and truths. Um, there are a variety of things a timelessness advocate might want to say here. First of all, um, whether or not, I mean, is the claim being made that there are tensed propositions? And that in order to know those propositions, God would have to be temporal. Is that the claim? I think that that's how it would have to go, right? I mean, if you understand, uh, yeah. Okay, if, if yeah. So one, one thing an atemporalist might say in response to this that I have some sympathy for, but it's not where I'm going to camp out. But one thing is, well, look, it's wrongheaded to construe God's knowledge propositionally, that that's just problematic in its own right. And if that's right, then the objection doesn't get started. Um, I'm very sympathetic with that view. Um, in fact, I think it's right, but I'm gonna, but I'm not gonna camp out there. Look, I think uh, tense sentences um, are ultimately reducible to tenseless ones. Um, and I think, I, in other words, I. I I'm not at all inclined to think there are tensed facts, um, or maybe that's the wrong way to put it. Um, yeah, Matt, I, I need to think a bit more about this. Um, it's been a while since I thought about this particular issue, and there are two or three other things I think I want to say, but I'm not. Um, it's not fresh enough on my mind to articulate well. So I'm no help. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, was where we all knew this was going. <laughs> uh, I, I think I would beg to differ. This has been very helpful for me. I, I've really enjoyed it. So, Dr. Blunt, can, do you have a website or anything at this point where you're uploading anything where people can connect with you? Yeah, I do. Uh, it's uh, And I'm not attending to it as often as I need to. So, But that's something I'm hoping changes, uh, especially over the coming months, since we're just now about to hit summer. But the website is called bluntlystated.com. And of course, blunt is B-L-O-U-N-T. So it's bluntlystated.com. Cool. Well, this has been a ton of fun. So I, what I need to tell everybody is go check out the, your website, uh, bluntlystated.com. I'll put that in the description, the notes, wherever you're listening. You can click on it, take you right there, uh, and get access to all the fun stuff that's there. Uh, as I mentioned, I think Dr. Blunt is awesome. So this and this topic, if you know, you probably want to talk about it more. So maybe we'll have to do a follow-up episode talking about other things related to timelessness or other topics I don't know. Yeah, at the very least, we need to do a follow-up so I can respond to Matt's last question more helpfully. <laughs> I like <So>. it. <laughs> Matt, Matt's here. He's he's the serious thinker. He's the one posing the questions that can't be answered. Well, there you go. 
<laughs> awesome. Well, this has been great. So thanks, everybody who's been tuning in. As you know, this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon.